Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. From the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In our Gospel reading today, we find Jesus on the way to Jerusalem passing between Samaria and Galilee. The location leaves ambiguous the sort of people Jesus might come in contact with as he travels, but it at least leaves open the possibility that Samaritans might be involved in the story. Those people despised by faithful Jews but nevertheless continually identified by St. Luke as those whom God is determined to reconcile. And so upon entering a village, Jesus hears the cries of ten lepers. They stand at a distance outside the city, forming a kind of small community of the wretched. These victims of skin maladies are also the subjects of an even worse social disease, regarded as living under divine curse and marked as ritually unclean bodies. They are relegated to the city's margins. And so knowing that they're not permitted to approach the non-leprous, they shout to Jesus from a distance, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And while we might be tempted to regard their request as simply asking for some more change in their beggar's cups, some alleviation for their deep poverty, Luke actually intends even more. Master, the lepers call out. A term that in Luke's gospel is used mostly by the disciples, the insiders, the ones who have seen and witnessed and known the miraculous ministry of Christ the healer. And so somehow these outcasts, banished from social life, perceive the truth about Jesus, and so they ask for his healing work. And Jesus responds, Echoing the story in 2 Kings of Naaman's cleansing from leprosy, Luke tells us that Jesus instructs the lepers to act, anticipating their healing. He commands them to go to the temple, to show themselves to the priests, just as the law commands. And so all ten obey. They take off. And as they go, they are cleansed we would do well to imagine what that scene would look like. Ten wretched, leprous beggars discovering their being transformed and restored as they picked up the pace en route to the priests, being healed with each joyous step. But the story does not, of course, end there. While many of the healing narratives in the Gospels conclude with the image of the restored person departing in joy, here St. Luke tells us of a return. 
And so we find that this return to Jesus is actually what the whole story is about. Then one of them, Luke tells us, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. One of the lepers has recognized something unique in these events, and so he responds accordingly. He responds to the miraculous healing, Luke tells us, in three ways. The first is to be expected by now by readers of Luke's gospel. In a number of Jesus' miracles recorded thus far, the recipients respond in praise to God. But the next two acts are a bit unexpected. The man falls prostrate before Jesus and gives him thanks. The man draws a rather remarkable conclusion from the work of this strange miracle worker, for he discerns that the appropriate place to praise God is at the feet of this man, Jesus. Though on his way to the temple, the location designated for the praise and worship of God, the healed leper discerns the true temple of God's presence as in the body of this man. And so he falls before the feet of Jesus. But let us not miss the most important description of the man's actions. He gives thanks. What distinguishes this one man from the other nine is not that he received something the others did not, but that he acts in gratitude. Jesus had already observed earlier in Luke's gospel that God bestows mercy even on the ungrateful. And so the difference between this one Samaritan man and the other nine is not the nature of the benefits received, but the presence or absence of gratitude. All ten lepers were healed, but this one who acts in gratitude, who returns to Jesus' feet, he is the one reconciled to God in Christ. This one man recognizes that he has been the recipient of a divine gift, and that such a demand demands our response of thanks and gratitude. In what is, in my opinion, one of the most profound sections of his great church dogmatics, Karl Barth wrote of this gratitude. It appears in an almost shocking way, a, a treatise on gratitude and a systematic theology. At least us who rarely think about the importance of gratitude, especially with respect to God. But for Barth, gratitude is not some kind of afterthought in our thinking about salvation it's the very essence of our relationship to God. What is our very existence but sheer gift? 
We are called into life by the word of God, Bart says, and this is a word as a word of grace. Grace is the reason for our existence. And thus, the most fundamental response to this fact is gratitude. Gratitude that we are. The act of gratitude is more than an attitude or a feeling. It must be the posture of our whole lives. This is why Bart goes so far as to say we have our very being in gratitude. That's such a beautiful phrase, our being in gratitude. Gratitude is the most fundamental thing that a human creature can show forth, for it is most basically an acknowledgement that God is God and we are not. Our existence is wholly dependent on God's sheer gift. And so our humanity is located crucially not so much in rationality, in consciousness, or will, but in the gratitude that is our response to grace. Not, I think, therefore I am, right? I thank, therefore I am. Gratitude is the only appropriate response to the gracious gift of our being at all. Only the grateful person, Bart says, is truly human. Ingratitude is not bestial. Human beings cannot become beasts. And besides, the Psalms indicate that even the beasts join in praise to the Creator. And so the only alternative to gratitude is nothing. And so here's the stark alternative gratitude or nihilism. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. The healed leper receives his body back in healing. He receives his belonging to human community back in being restored, but the healed leper found his very being at the feet of Jesus, giving thanks, responding to grace in gratitude. And this gratitude is our Christian vocation. St. Ambrose tells us that no duty is more urgent than that of returning thanks. When I was growing up, my parents were insistent that the days following every birthday or Christmas were to be spent writing thank you notes to family and friends who had given me gifts for the occasion. And I cannot tell you how much I hated having to do this. I would do everything in my power to delay having to sit down and write those letters to the point where many of my family members were receiving thank you cards in mid-March. And I can actually remember quite vividly deliberating on several occasions. Was it really worth it 
to receive all these gifts if it meant having to spend all that time giving thanks? Might it not just be better to decline Christmas presents next year to save myself the trouble? Now, this is quite silly, I know. Or is it, though? I mean, perhaps, perhaps you know the weight of receiving a gift. The difficulty of simply saying thank you without responding or struggling to repay, without repaying the gifter, to balance things out, right, by returning the favor. Perhaps you know the strain that gratitude entails, and you're tempted to evade the uncomfortable position of being a recipient, a dependent, by reasserting yourself as an equal. Maybe you do know, in fact, the temptation to refuse a gift in order to avoid gratitude. Why is it that gratitude is so difficult? When we know it's so basic to our humanity, why is it that it often feels so unnatural, so unhuman? I don't know if there was ever a time in history when it was easier to give thanks, when one could respond and receive gifts and respond in gratitude and delight. I doubt that there ever was, but I do know that it's increasingly difficult to practice gratitude in our world today. And that's because our lives are so determined and dominated by exchange and consumption. We feel every day the pressure of constant exchanges, labor for money, money for goods, goods for status, status for power, and anything and everything can be, must be, a commodity available for exchange. We feel the way these exchanges entail relations of power, the way gift-giving becomes this kind of perverse form of establishing superiority and dominance. There seems, in fact, to be no such thing as true gift, only one side of an exchange waiting for you to return the favor. Gratitude, we sense, is simply an admission of inferiority and assuming the position of a debtor. There's no time to respond to a gift in gratitude because we instantly begin scheming to repay. And we feel not just the pressures of exchange, but the pressures of consuming, of endless accumulation, It's not simply that we're becoming more selfish people, though that might be true, but that we live in a world that needs us to need. Consumer capitalism lives off the production of this insatiable desire, the perpetual creation of needs that can only be met temporarily until consumer desire is aroused once again. (laughs) 
Our political economy depends on our not finding gratitude. Our inability to give thanks for what we have and what we've been given. So gratitude, it seems, is actually a vice, not a virtue. It's a sign of complacency, of being static, when we should be progressing in status, accumulating more wealth and more goods. Now maybe I've got you all totally wrong. And you figured this out, how to live out the gratitude that God calls us to. But if you're like me, then you feel the constant difficulty of expressing gratitude, both to God and our neighbors. Because it forces you to reckon with your dependence, with your finitude, and with your need. But friends, this is what the gospel calls us to. It calls us to gratitude for every good gift from above given to us in grace by the Father. It calls us to live lives of profound gratitude in a world of self-interest and accumulation and the constant pursuit of more and more. And this is what makes the gospel so radical in a world that's dominated by capital and determined by exchange. The simple receiving of a gift, it's subversive. Gratitude is revolutionary. And perhaps this is the crux of Christian witness today, to embody gratitude in a world that is determined to seek self-interest to the point of self-destruction. To receive what we've been given in thanksgiving and praise. And all this begins with recognizing our very existence, that thing most basic to us, our being, as gift, and responding in gratitude and praise and thanksgiving to God. How do we do this? Not certainly by striving toward being a better more thankful, more mindful person, as if gratitude were simply a matter of self-cultivation, of finding and accumulating one more thing we did not possess. That's still buying into the problem. Rather, we seek to embody gratitude by receiving gratitude as itself a gift from God. Gratitude begins in prayer. Pray for gratitude, friends. And come forward this morning and receive the free gift of grace at this table. Eat and drink and be thankful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.